Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Open your mind to a new way of living. timberliving.ie. Good morning and welcome to the Brendan O'Connor Show. Um, Derville McDonald with you uh, this morning on this, the uh, the final day of 2023, which is sort of hard uh, to believe. Um, with the year of global elections just about to get underway um, in Ireland, we're actually facing four potential polls uh, next year. There is simply acres of news printed uh, that is dedicated today to whether we will see a tectonic political shift next year or more of the same. Our panel have been working away this morning picking the best and the rest of you from this morning's papers. I'll introduce you to them shortly but first let's take a look at this morning's headlines. No deal has been reached between Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and Fianna Fáil on the soon to be vacant EU Commissioner role. That's according to the Irish Mail on Sunday which says that Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has risked a damaging row with Tionis Jumihal Martin, whose support he will rely on to remain in government after the next general election by insisting that no deal has yet been done on the Commissioner role. Elsewhere, the Sunday Times leads with a report by Claire Scott that Mr Radker is confident of being in government again, with Fianna Fáil offering to share the role of Taoiseach in the next term. Much of this morning's newsprint is occupied with, occupied rather, with rotating Tishi uh, musings over the next moves over a wide range of political players, including Public Expenditure Minister Pascal Donoghue, with endless analysis on the winners and losers of the political year that was. The Business Post leads with an interview with Finance Minister Michael McGrath who says that Ireland has turned the corner on inflation despite the impact of global headwinds on the country's economy. For its lead, the Sunday Independent publishes details of an as yet unpublished internal review into the death in hospital last year of teenager Aoife Johnson revealed Aoife's final harrowing hours in hospital. That's the headline of the report by Maeve Sheehan. Many of this morning's tabloids cover the appearance in court yesterday of a 22-year-old man who was charged in connection with the murder of gunman Tristan Sherry at a steakhouse in Blanchardstown on Christmas Eve. It's the lead for the Irish Sunday Mirror, the Irish Sun on Sunday and the Sunday the World. Um, across the RC, uh, there's a lot of focus on Labour leader uh, Keir Starmer as he inches closer to power. We'll be speaking to someone later on who has actually worked quite closely with him. But for now, happy nearly... New Year to uh, our newspaper panel, Grandina A, news reporter with PA, to Bridget Laffin, Chancellor of the University of Limerick, to human rights campaigner Carl McGorman, and to Peter Brown from Bagnum Investments. Welcome on this nearly, nearly New Year. Grania, I'm going to start with you because, um, like, when you have to have some sympathy for the journalists who are working <laughs> on the Twixtmas week between Christmas and New Year, um, lots of reflecting back and uh, looking ahead, but um, lots of stuff. But a piece by Matt Cooper struck uh, you was the the political players to, to watch. Yeah, um, I think it's kind of interesting because I don't think politics has dominated this year, maybe the way it has previous years or could. It very much felt like the calm before the big election storm next year. Um, you know, there's talk talk about Leo Varadkar, who was this young um, kind of budding leader who was going meant to appeal to the kind of younger voters and how he stands as leader of the party before uh, um, the elections uh, next year. And then Michal Martin, as Matt Cooper calls him, the great survivor of Irish politics at the start of this year. There, almost every senior Fianna Fáil member was asked 
do you think will be home should leave but, party but, but for, the, the, next for the last you know kind of 18 months people are saying will he lead into the next general election that question is not being asked anymore it's not being asked anymore and I think that's kind of the most inside baseball-y story of, of this year um, about Michal Martin's leadership and uh, you know um, I asked him what he what advice he has for any political leaders dealing with a bit of trouble in their backbenches and he said you know deal with the issues maybe a bit statesmanlike he would say that I'd like to know his off the record <laughs> response to that but um, I think uh, it's it's a, I suppose a, a lesson in not writing people off and not assuming too much about politics because issues can change the landscape and I think the how big um, international conflicts were this year gave him a platform to be quite statesmanlike. And his comfort in that role um, in foreign affairs. Yeah, absolutely. And also, but that, that the government was pretty much in lockstep with the Irish public's thinking on Israel, Gaza. That's a very... Uh, broad stroke uh, statement but by and large they did what people expected calling for a ceasefire very early on and being quite strong on the disproportionality of Israel's response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th so it was it was an easy one to be quite for the government to be quite strong on um, but you know I think the other thing um, that there's a piece in the Business Post um, by um, Daniel Murray as well where Barry Cowan who would have been one of the possible leadership contenders for, for FINA fall who's now set his eyes on Europe he said that the elections are going to be like uh, assessing the parties themselves assessing what do we stand for but and, and it's which elections <laughs> local <laughs> European even the the mayor the inaugural mayoral yeah. one in Limerick you're um, going to have every type election this country can have in the space of 20 months so we've got local Local, European, European potential ge- general general election, the elect election of a directly elected mayor in Limerick, Limerick. Um, the Shannon elections, the presidential elections and by-elections on top of all of them. And you forgot the referendum. referendum. <laughs> two, two to four referendums <laughs> under this current programme. For- um, uh, Colin O'Gorman, um, just referencing that Daniel Murray piece in the Business Post, um, voter reigns supreme in 2024. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one actually. On on Michal Martin, um, yeah, I can remember when he was when he was um, when he became leader of Fianna Fáil. You know, the talk at the time, and I thought to myself was that he would be the first leader of Fianna Fáil who would never be Taoiseach. Mm-hmm. And now it looks entirely possible that he could again be Taoiseach. Uh, and if you look at his public profile and his level of support, the the the, the thinking at the time of the establishment of the government seemed to be that they'd let Michal Martin in first, and then Leo could go in for the second half of of being Taoiseach, and then his profile would be much higher. Hasn't played out like that at all. I mean, Michal Martin has has confounded an awful lot of expectations. And just to say, I actually don't think it was easy for it was easy in the Irish context for the government to be as clear and as strong on Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories on that conflict as they have been. But it wasn't easy in a broader European or even global context. And if you look at the response of corporate America, to, for instance, to people. Um, speaking plainly or bluntly in relation to that conflict. I mean, it's not without its risk. Uh, there are real risks, both political and economic for Ireland in its taking in taking the positions that it have. So I think they should yeah. be commended for it. I think we need to continue to do it and I think we probably need to go further. Richard, um, does it surprise you at all that sort of tenacity or the staying power or the fact that Michal Martin has confounded um, all of those, you know, there were headlines in so many papers over the last, you know, while? No, because I, I think Michal Martin knows who he is. Mm. He knows what he stands for. He carries, in my view, a quiet authority. Uh, I also think he has experienced some personal traumas in his life. So he's a very empathic human being. Uh, he also takes very good care of himself. He, 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 he He's very fit. Uh, 
but also he's very able and he has he has a light touch. He's not a, a visionary in the sense of one of these charismatic leaders, but he's, he has he carries a quiet authority. I also think he intends uh, leading Fianna Fáil into the next election. I well, think after all of this, Peter, maybe he's entitled to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm looking at Shane Ross's headline here in the uh, Sunday Independent. Are we ready for a year of real political change with a question mark after it? I'm wondering, is that a tongue-in-cheek remark? Because, you know, Keir Starmer in the UK, you know, I can't see the UK changing politically no matter what happens, right? It's in such a mess. Mary Lou MacDonald, potentially. Michelle O'Neill, potentially. Trump, Putin. And Paddy Power now have Trump as favourite mm. yeah. for your election. I mean, young people must look at this lineup and go, you know, have we, have we become disenfranchised of politics completely? There doesn't seem to be anything sort of youth coming through at all, uh, from what I can see. It, it's just more, it's absolutely, potentially exactly the same, I think. Well, does I that mean, that's cynical, but I, mean, I, I look at it that way and I just cannot get excited about any of these what, elections. It's hard to see what the change has been, has been described there. I mean, you, you're, you're t- Mary McKeown has a, 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 yes. a good piece in the Sunday Business Post as well, where she's talking about the, the elderly the white general men. election. Yeah. Yeah. But she, she's, when, she, when she talks about what the polling is telling us at the moment, I mean, uh, Trump now currently leads Biden in all six, things, six swing states and in North Carolina. Um, uh, he is his lead over Biden has expanded by six points from 31% to 37% so um, Trump's appearance in court appeared in court for the first time in April this year and we're so used to seeing him now but that has turned into a a rallying cry for a lot of his supporters of course and he's benefiting from it we're actually speaking lots to uh, Martin Wall uh, from the Irish Times yesterday just as he came home from his uh, stint there can I ask you uh, Peter uh, just you know when we consider the um, theatrics that the annual um, budget uh, attracts and all of the stage management around it. Um, uh, we've several budget changes coming in tomorrow, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the papers. <laughs> no, it's not in the papers at all, but it is It is worth uh, mentioning because uh, it's about 800... Are we going to feel better off? Yeah, it's about €800 Euros per person. Uh, the What's the big ticket are, issues coming in? Yeah, The highlights are uh, an increase in the annual uh, rent tax for people, the rent tax credit from 500 to 750 uh, a reduction in USC from four and a half to four. Uh, personal tax credits are up by a hundred. Carers allowances are increasing. Welfare allowances are increasing. Um, we've got the energy credit, one hundred and fifty euros. That's coming straight away, uh, and the minimum wage is up uh, to twelve euros seventy an hour. So there is, there is. And are you worried about the inflationary effects of that, or do you think it's something we can Look, manage? The, the, I, I see Michael McGrath in the in, in the Business Post lead is talking about, despite the global headwinds that. It's going to be easier this year. He yeah, well, kind of, uh, you know, there's there's two views on inflation. One is that it's 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 over, uh, and there's other views that it isn't, right? And I'm in the isn't category <laughs> because I look back to 1970s, and in 1970s, inflation roared and then collapsed, and then it roared back double, right, a year later. Um, so I don't think it's over, and I think people who are anticipating interest rate increases fast are going to be sorely disappointed. In terms of predictions um, Bridget, uh, I see Shane Coleman uh, has had great fun with his uh, political fortunes, 10 predictions for uh, 2024 I mean what do you think are the most sort of stark things from that or do you agree or disagree with most of his So looking uh, at the tea leaves uh, Some of them are not predictions because he mulls over a general election 24. I don't think there probably will be. I think we're heading into 25. You'd be in a a minority on that one, Bridget. Uh, um, 
I because I think this government will want another budget. Now, that can change if economic circumstances change. But if the economy remains resilient, they'll want one more budget because then they'll have a two. But they don't, they don't like a night knocking doors in the winter? No, no. But but then late autumn isn't a great time to be knocking on yeah. doors either. So then that brings you back into probably September or the more radical one would be to run Euros local and a general election. But I don't. Grony, if anything, that. people are saying it'll either be, you know, maybe a surprise one, maybe in May, but more likely than not um, later in the year to get another sort of a budget bounce. Yeah, I mean, it. It. I think um, it's in Leo Varadkar's gift, really, when when as Taoiseach, when we go to the polls and it could come down to um, a flick of a switch. Um, we have seen issues come to the fore so quickly and change the entire dynamic of the of, of the politics in Ireland or take over politics in Ireland. And it could be something like that that decides which which end of the, the budget um, an election happens. But I, I think, um, you know, the last election happened in February, not a particularly warm or or happy month for people. I think you can get really into the weeds on timing and weather and all that when it really can come down to what are the polls saying? What is the political landscape at the moment and what issues are we going to fight this general election? The on? reality is we're going to be in all of the political parties and every aspiring candidate is going to be in general election mode from yeah. You know, from January now, first from, from now on like cam- campaigning and so canvassing will have been started yeah absolutely for, for, but I mean there'll, there'll be I, I suspect there'll be major canvassing as part of the European and locals for the general at the same time all of these things are just going to roll into each other um, so um, I, um, I wouldn't be Colin, surprised what do you think you know like year. I mean often uh, referenda referendums um, you know fall victim to issues that are not actually about the the specific issue, but the you know holding of those two referenda, like I mean, even the the care in the home one is looking fragile enough, not least because it didn't really tally with the the recommendations of the citizens' assembly, but also unless civil society gets behind an issue, it can make it even more of an uphill battle. And I think there's there's a, a there's a a, a real. Uh, problem with the political system taking for granted that civil society will get behind that referendum. Mm. I mean, you know, speaking very much from a personal perspective, I can't see an awful lot of point in that referendum. You know, it's not it's not delivering the kind of change that was recommended constitutionally either by the by the Citizens Assembly or or by the Oireachtas Committee. Um, it's it's lukewarm. Its impact will be minimal. It seems to be fairly cosmetic. Um, so, you know, be careful what you wish for, I would say. You know, if that referendum were to pass, what does that mean about strengthening protection and provision for caring and for caregiving? I mean, my own view is we should have a much shorter um, constitution. You know, if, 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 if it was at all possible, wouldn't it be great to actually think about a new constitution for a modern Ireland? And um, there's an awful lot of things in our constitution that shouldn't be there. And there are things that should be there. It's that also stood the test of time. It stood, the, it stood the test of time, but it's often been both a barrier to progress because it's being used as an excuse to not progress issues. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's, it's, it's just contained lofty aspirations that are not in any way enforceable or that don't place any obligations on the state that they can simply ignore. Do, do, you, do you worry about, Bridget, do you worry about the yeah. referenda? So I, I, I'm, I, I, I would predict turnout will be low. And it may or may not be carried. And referendums are strange political events. Anything can, anything can happen. And, and I agree with Colm. It's not that consequential. 
where I probably disagree with you would be on a desire for a new Irish constitution. Well, I think Not, it's impossible. I just think uh, it'd be a yeah. nice thing. I so think it's that, impossible. It's never going to happen. For, <laughs> for me, there's also some merit in constitutional conservatism. What do I mean by that? If you have a system where a constitution is embedded as ours is, with judicial mm. review, which allows mm. for change, and referendums and I think referendums should be used sparingly mm. in relation to a constitution. I think it's a system that has served us well and that that doesn't mean that there's every I would stand behind every line or article of the Irish constitution but it has stood us well and my concern would be I'm not sure either in terms of process or politics, would we end up in a better place? So, no, I think that's, I think, and I absolutely agree with you, Bridget. I mean, I'm being very idealistic in that. I think if we were able to, to yeah. start again, we would sure. probably come up with something very, very different. But I don't think that's in any way deliverable. I, give I do older, think, by the way, rip a 10 year old and give them, g- a, give them the job of dreaming. There's a difference. Off. There's a difference. There are two referendums, of course. And I mean, yes. I think the care one is looking fragile. Um, I think the, the, the status of the family referendum is an important constitutional change and absolutely needs to happen. So I, I would imagine could, Grania, I imagine it could be quite contested, perhaps not yes. quite contested as the potential invasion Absolutely. of the Greens yeah. to take on the Healy Rays in, on their home turf. What on earth is that mm. about? So John Drennan has a piece in the Mail on Sunday and uh, uh, it is written with John's um, enjoyable Trademark turn of phrase. <laughs> so basically Eamon Ryan has said that he is going to face uh, down the Healy Rays in their own uh, Kerry constituency during the local elections. Um, that is a bold kind of statement uh, because... And on what basis was it made? I think you were at the press conference, were you? Yeah, so um, uh, John Drennan was asking about um, how they are prepared for the next general elections and um, Eamon Ryan was asked about his connection to rural voters um, and that, that, you know, he said he feels very connected to um, rural life and rural Ireland and he talked about, um, he said, I've never found a period in my life where I was disconnected and uh, they were talking about uh, the party's aspirations for the local elections and he said we are completely prepared for the local elections, we are uh, optimistic and prepared and um, when asked if he was to take on, uh, you know, the Kerry kingdom, the Kerry constituency, he said he would absolutely be taking on the Healy Ray dynasty. And that is bold because in the 2020 general election, the Healy Rays got a third of the popular vote, with the Greens getting uh, 5% uh, of that. And asked um, again how many seats he hoped the Greens would get in the local elections, Eamon Ryan said, as John said, uh, with a Churchillian-style declaration, we will win in Kerry, we will win in Mayo, we will win in Donegal. So so that is the kind of <laughs> fiery, fiery talk that I'm really looking forward to with the elections next year. I'm you know? looking forward to Eamon Ryan uh, going into uh, to, to carry into Healy Ray country. I think we'd and, all uh, buy tickets to that. Might, he might never we, come out. Exactly. Might never see him again. Well, Peter, um, one of the, um, the the many issues in terms of the predictions and what could potentially be the issues um, in elections both here and elsewhere is the um, issue of immigration and. Um, uh, it's interesting that uh, the Sunday Times has a, a strong story on its uh, on the front page of its business section, which is actually talking about you know the need for more permits because of labour market shortages. And so we have that on the one hand, and then a very very emotive debate on the other. Um, I think sometimes we talk about immigration, we need to to break it down to asylum and people seeking refugee, and then alongside this economy requires workers. 
Yeah, and it's kind of it balances the the argument uh, a little bit. I think. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's your oil piece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We, we created we created a hundred thousand new jobs last year in the in the economy. That's that's the the positive thing, and likely to do so again this year, right? So you know, going back to the point about you know during the election, I think the economy will be in a perfect condition if they want to do another budget before the election. They'll have loads of money, uh, is my view. Uh, but however, this is very interesting because uh, in 2022, we issued, 20, issued 40,000 permits right, uh, to foreign workers to come and work in Ireland. And this year, in 2024, uh, we're going to issue 40,000 more and probably more than that, uh, specifically in areas like IT, uh, health, of course, uh, we know, uh, and in areas like agriculture. And the one that has totally surprised me is that when they've increased the category of the eligible occupations, as one of them is meteorologists. Yes. <laughs> in a country obsessed by weather. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, and, um, you know, good quality jobs. They're kind of, you know, in most... Minimum salary, 34,000. 34,000 in most permitted uh, occupations. And the reality is this country is booming and it needs people to work in it uh, and this is this is one of the issues that the UK are having really with Brexit yeah. uh, is a big issue for yeah. them uh, and, and and a country like Ireland much much smaller in the UK is needing 40,000 foreign workers a year uh, so it's very positive so the immigration story is not all about all those workers will pay tax you know contribute to society you know so it's, I think it's a very positive but story And uh, though Colin McGorm just you know the you know, a lot of people are predicting that immigration is going to become a major issue. Just um, just this morning, actually, just we're, we're hearing since we came on air that Guardi in Dublin are investigating after a disused pub in Ringsend, which was wrongly rumoured to be earmarked for asylum seeker accommodation, was gutted last night by fire. Um, just news breaking that six fire engines and 30 firefighters dealt with the fire and it took three hours to bring it under control. But uh, local uh, representatives are saying this morning that the premises was, in fact, to be used as a family hub for homeless people. I know there was an item um, column in one of the papers talking about, you know, the, the number of riots or protests being related to um, two issues of of the asylum element, let's, for want of a better phrase, of migration. Do you think that that is going to become a, a much more contested issue for us? I think one of the things that I have concerns about is that uh, we will we will position a conversation about immigration in entirely the kind of dishonest way that you express concerns about, right? That we'll talk about immigration as it relates and we'll really be talking about refugees and asylum seekers and that will be presented as a challenge, a bad thing, a problem that has to be solved. In the way in the UK, um, back in the in the in the Cameron Brown years, in the run up to that general election, when they were de- debating immigration, and actually what people were concerned about was not asylum seekers or refugees arriving; they were actually concerned about EU inward migration. Right? They were they were concerned about freedom of movement and that displacing people in local communities. And look at the toxic mess that any conversation on immigration is now in the UK. And we really need to avoid that. I think we absolutely should have a conversation about immigration. I think immigration is a key area of public policy that we need to focus on, that we need to plan for, that we need to prepare for and that we need to discuss, including with with communities, with with any stakeholder that will be Im- Im- impacted by immigration. But so we have to do I'd, so I'd, in an honest change, way. How do we change like, that conversation? On, well, one, one of the things 
things we can do, for instance, is we can be careful in our in our reporting of it. I mean that 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 piece that you just referenced by Joe O'Connell and Colin Colin Murphy in the in the Sunday uh, Independent. The headline is over a third of Dublin rallies in 2023 were anti-migrant, and it goes on to say that um, of the 604 public gatherings in the Dublin metropolitan region as of December this year, the vast majority were peaceful. Of these, 231 were related to anti-immigration, while fewer than half that amount, 98, were related to the conflict in Israel and Palestine. Now, that's presented as if saying, so you can see the scale of concern about immigration versus Israel and Palestine. But the Hamas attack on Israel and and that conflict happened from October 7th. So actually, disproportionately, the number of people who have taken to the streets to protest or to voice concern in Ireland on that conflict are way more than the number who might have come out on an anti-immigration position. And equally, those involved in an organised way in stoking up anti, anti-immigration sentiment or anti-migrant or anti-refugee and asylum seeker sentiment, to be clear about it, because that's their focus, are a very small number of people who are travelling the country and stoking up concerns in local communities where, of course, there are questions that should be answered. Of course, there are conversations that need to be had. But when you see premises being burned out, when you see now a homeless hub being destroyed in Dublin because some criminal extremists decided that it might be used to house people who are homeless, who happen to be refugees or asylum seekers, were in a, Bridget, we're in a dark Well, the new pact on migration and asylum at a European level, is that going to help? Does it help that, you know, that that uh, e- even if we try and comfort ourselves that the far right is, is small and, you know, here in Ireland, um, certainly when you look at the, the p- political results across Europe, um, these are issues that are fueling the rise of very populist parties. And have been for quite a long, have been for quite a long time. And the reality of the world we live in, we live in an extraordinarily unequal world. And Europe is a very rich part of the world, a very privileged part of the world. And we border very poor and unstable countries. And uh, inevitably, people will want to move to have a better life and better chances for their children. Uh, And... The the more there's one extreme that says borders should disappear, that you can't have borders as containers, that they are discriminatory. I don't actually think that's viable politically or socially and sociologically anywhere in the world. So the question is how you manage borders. Uh, but you will always have a significant level of illegal migration and in a world of hypermobility, the 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 space in which you get asylum-seeking refugees and illegal migration interacts and intersects simply because of the level, the the facility of mobilisation. And it's now a very big industry as well. So I do think the pact is better than what existed before. But will this continue to be an extremely thorny issue for all societies, including our own? And I think it comes down to also the pinch points uh, in terms of public services, housing, we already are running at about production of houses, building of houses, 30,000 a year. But apparently the growth but in Peter, population means Peter, we need 50. Population growth, so the National Development wh- Plan, we're going to need so much more. And yet when Sinn Féin wobbled on the possibility of reducing house prices in Dublin, th- th- there's a contradiction, isn't it, when it comes to housing in terms of... Uh, Countries like ours that rely a lot on housing for yeah. personal Yeah, housing is, is, is just a decade, decades-long problem that uh, it doesn't seem possible to solve. And really, you know, without getting into the detail here, we're, we're into planning, we're into all that, and land use, we're into all of those areas, we're into the costs, all of that stuff. And 
I think the the, the government. The election is just going to be totally about housing mm. because we're massively short. We're doing about thirty thousand, and we probably need fifty. Yep. Right. So we're 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 losing twenty thousand. And I I also wonder, just looking at this article, you know, just struck me here: these forty thousand people that are getting permits, right? Are these forty thousand people we're attracting in because we've got jobs on top of our immigration mm. issue? Right. There was an extra forty thousand who are IT workers who are picking up housing. You know, who are another forty thousand are taking houses. Of course, we're not actually a, taking. We're not actually giving those. 40, and of course, we, we we have a, a, a night flow as well. Your observation, Peter, that um, it's simply not possible to solve it um, uh, overnight gives me a great excuse to take a break. <laughs> we'll be back after this. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. You're all very, very welcome back and no doubt everybody is planning what they're doing uh, tonight for New Year's Eve. Uh, let's find out what uh, Chris Hadfield is up to. Happy New Year to you, Chris Hadfield. Happy New Year to you as well. What are you up to this evening? I haven't quite decided uh, just yet. Um, it'll probably be a very, very quiet one. You see, Chris, we have a, in Ireland, all the women have an excuse for not starting their New Year's resolutions until none of them on on the 6th. I'm a more of a uh, leave it for another week kind of girl. But listen, you are uh, not just on earth today. You're actually with us uh, in Dublin. Uh, what has brought you to Ireland for Christmas and the New Year? Oh, family. Uh, and it's been terrific. We've had uh, people travel here from all over, spread around the world, but we've all gathered here for Christmas and now for New Year's, and it's been it's been terrific. Uh, just it, it's such an important time of year to reconnect and to maybe take a break away from the from the pace of life's demands, and it's worked out beautifully that way. And you've quite a, a number of your family uh, with you in town tonight. What what are you planning for for New Year's Eve? Where will the Hadfields be? Uh, fairly quiet. Um, it's uh, three generations, and I'm, I'm actually there. There's a, an evening uh, event at the zoo, at the Dublin Zoo, oh, the and my eight-year-old yeah. granddaughter is here, and so she's going to go with her grandpa to the Dublin Zoo today uh, in the evening event. And I think we'll be walking around the shops this afternoon as well. But for where we'll be exactly at the stroke of midnight, we'll have to see how the evening develops. We don't have a concrete plan yet. It's possible I'll be dreaming of the new year. We'll see how it goes. You have been out and about documenting your trip on social media. I know you've been in Galway and uh, off to the Cliffs of Moher. How has the weather been with all of the the rain and wind? Have you you managed to, to weather that okay? I was a little concerned that there was a named storm that was, uh, you know, attacking while uh, while we were out there. But we went um, at, up at the cliffs. It was it was there were lots of people and uh, there were rain. While, while we were in the cafe, there was a heavy rainstorm. But when we came out, it was uh, nothing but sunshine and rainbows in the distance, and it was the wind was howling. But I think the cliffs are more. I don't know, more noteworthy when the when the wind is howling. It was it was magnificent and beautiful and wild and uh, just what the Atlantic Way is supposed to be. Just so no, it, and and we went out to uh, to Aran as well and um, similar sort of weather where we were almost <laughs> blown off the cliff. But but I think it it helps you feel what it must have been like for the last bunch of thousands and thousands of years that people have been yeah. there when you when you feel it, the, the it, power of nature at the same time. It, it is absolutely majestic. I have to ask you, um, you know, you've been uh, around the sun uh, so many times, around the earth so many times. Have you ever been um, uh, in space for a new year? Have you ever ce- celebrated Happy New Year in, in outer space? I have. I haven't. It's actually quite delightful because if you think about it, I'm going around the world every 90 minutes. 
So 16 times a day. So as as the world turns and each different place uh, celebrates New Year's, I, f- I flash overhead. And so it's almost as if New Year's becomes 48 hours long for us because we get to watch the people in, you know, Guam and Micronesia celebrate New Year's and then all the way around right up until Hawaii is celebrating New Year's. So it prolongs the day. And, and everybody on board the spaceship calls down to their family, you know, at the various times of day. So it's kind of a, a very... Um, not slightly melancholy, but also a very perspective-building place to look as the New Year dawns. Um, and what do you actually get? Do you get to see anything at all? Do you get to see the, the fireworks or our alien cousins up there? What do you get to see when we were partying it up on New Year's Eve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, fireworks on board a spaceship would be a bad idea. A but, bad idea. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have, you know, noisemakers, and we, we actually on board the spaceship. We keep a big bag of costumes, and so people will put on silly hats and, and masks, and and I don't know what all we have up there. We have a like a Spider-Man shirt or something like that. So people will dress up and and just be silly. But looking down at the Earth, we of course want to be able to see the fireworks. But fireworks, even though they seem bright when you're standing out in the darkness from above, looking down at a city, they don't stand out very well. But a couple astronauts, self-included, have seen the very brief flash of fireworks over a big city. And I think the ones we saw were over Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Oh. So uh, they're not as brilliant, but uh, but it's it's sort of like you've stolen a peek of, of what's going on when you get to and, see and one. They do know how to uh, celebrate in Rio. Tell me, um, obviously... We know you because your space career, but you're also a, a prolific writer and you have a new Cold War thriller um, that's out. Where did that come from? Well, um, I, I'm writing a, a series, a thriller series. The first was called The Apollo Murders, and it's done brilliantly, won awards and, and been an international bestseller. And the next book in the series is called The Defector, and it's a number one bestseller as well, which is delightful as a writer. Um, and before I became an astronaut, I was a test pilot um, in Canada and in America. And before that, I was a combat fighter pilot during the Cold War, intercepting armed Soviet bombers that were practicing attacks on North America. And so I've had sort of a an interesting career, you know, to work both at war and at peace with Russia. And um, and and I think it's important to think about the long term perspective. And so this book, The Defector, it takes place at the height of the Cold War. And, and it's the you know, it's a thrilling action packed story uh, of a uh, MiG-25, the fastest, highest flying fighter airplane ever built that defects and then is taken out to where all of those airplanes are kept out in the Nevada desert in America at a place called Area 51. That of a lot course, of people have yeah, heard of, that everyone and, has... and then the whole crux, yeah, the whole crux of the plot mm-hmm. is is why did that pilot want to get out there? What was the real nefarious and purpose? Sh- and and the book's done brilliantly, so I'm really excited about it. And one of your big fans is Sylvester Stallone. Uh, he's actually is he making a a, a movie or a series on at least one of your books? Is it? Yeah, he loved the Apollo murders. He and his wife and um, Jennifer and. Uh, and so his production company, which is called Balboa Productions, after Rocky, um, is working in, in tandem with a company in the UK called Altitude. And the two of them are making the Apollo Murders into an eight-part television series. And and so having written the Apollo Murders and now The Defector, which is raw material for them, and I'm working on the third book in the series uh, even today here on New Year's Eve, um, 
So all of that to me, it's just, it's amazing. What you're can you're putting the, the uh, rest you know, of us to, to shame. The world the way I have. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah it's, it's so much fun. And, and I'm just delighted that people are enjoying the stories that I'm writing. Yeah. Well, listen, Chris, we, we're delighted that we've got a chance to join you. We hope that you and your granddaughter enjoy the zoo tonight. And uh, I'm sure lots of people if they see you out and about, they'll uh, be saying hi to you. But listen, happy new year to you and your family. And thank you um, for joining us. Uh, what about you, Grania? Any Anything major planned tonight? Um, I'm going to uh, the house of two good friends that are very kindly and selflessly donating their house for New Year's <laughs> celebrations tonight. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's the best way to spend um, New Year's. There's, You know where you're going. You know where you're going to end up. You know you're going to get a seat. <laughs> you know you're going to get in. <laughs> um, so I think that is the best way to... to Bridget, spend. in all my years on the planet, I've never managed to successfully uh, navigate New Year's Eve. I'm either... Need you at the bar not getting it or I've missed friends or I'm in queue for the bathroom have you any special plans for tonight? Well I've just moved into a new home Ooh, and so excellent. I am going to spend a house warming a, no? a nice New Year's night in the new house yeah. Listen uh, we'll hope the plans work out I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be uh, back with more news after this Text 51551 Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. You're all very, very welcome back. Uh, Colm O'Gorman, um, 2023, even before um, the conflict um, in the Middle East and particularly with Gaza and Israel, we the world was already living with the highest levels of armed conflict um, since, I think, since 1945. There are so many other conflicts, whether it's Sudan, Yemen, so many other areas of the world where there are hugely grave um, humanitarian crises as a result of war and displacement. Yeah, and I mean, those feed into part of the conversation that we're having earlier on, right, on the the impacts of conflict, of poverty and increasingly of climate change on the displacement of people. There are actually 114 million people who are displaced now globally. But contrary to what how the this south is, is the, the in, south of the globe exactly, is for the most part exactly so I mean that's that's one of the key points here is contrary to how we often see this from a European or, or, or Western context 76% of refugees are hosted in low and middle income countries they're simply not uh, um, coming to or all seeking to come to, to Europe or even to North America. And that was certainly my experience. I remember visiting um, refugee encampments because there are no official refugee camps in in, in Lebanon. I visited Lebanon a few years ago and, and, and visited some of the informal tented settlements that were there. I remember speaking to a, a, a young mother from Syria who had a newborn baby in her arms and I was asking her, did she want to, get to come to Europe? And she got angry at the suggestion. She said, no, I want to go home. And until I want to go, until I can go home, I want to stay here because it's close to home. And if my husband has to go to Europe, then he can go to Europe and send money back to take care of us here before we go home. Refugees want to be at home. They don't want to be displaced uh, and they want to be able to, to return to home. And in terms of the, the, the longer term impact of, of immigration and the contribution that people make to societies, I mean, most research tells us that uh, refugees and asylum seekers become net contributors to their new countries and new communities within two years. And a lot of the barriers to people becoming net contributors are not about their inability to contribute, but rather some of the appalling systems that we have in place to process and facilitate people people's arrival, welcome, integration and establishment of new lives in, host, in, in, in their new communities and countries. I mean, that's why I'm particularly passionate about the whole area of community welcome. I mean, since 2021, 700,000 people 
have been resettled and welcomed into communities globally by communities through schemes like community sponsorship, a scheme that we have in, in Ireland, for instance, at the moment, and one that we really do need to grow. And that's where local communities are powerfully and dynamic. They're front and centre in welcoming and supporting the integration and the resettlement of people into their communities. It's community-led and community-driven, and that's the kind of progress that we need to need to move towards. But, you know, critically, I do think, yes, let's have a conversation. I absolutely believe we have to have a conversation about migration in this country. It needs to be a broad and open conversation. And my plea to the media in particular is, please don't position this as one of these polarised topics, because that alienates most people who want to have a conversation wherever they are on the spectrum of question or concern on this issue. It doesn't have to be presented like that. It doesn't reflect Irish society it's, it's and also, it isn't real. It's also not just media no. uh, or, you know, the political discourse as well um, has a lot uh, think, to, think, to, to answer I think our for. political system, though, has been fairly responsible on this issue. And I mean, we're, we're exceptional in that regard. I mean, many of the issues that we see in Europe, in North America and in the, in the, in, in the UK are because, you know, so-called hard men leaders wanted to stoke up this issue and use this issue to create to, a toxic debate to, to then to, to then uh, um, uh, um, just build up their, their political When you talk to ordinary people about migration, the things that they tell you about are uh, and that are wrong are not they're not getting from the media. Put it, to put it that way. Oh, no, I agree. I, I you know, agree that, with that. Like, the misinformation the, the, piece is mainly social media. It's driven. not. It's and, you, and some one of the one of the things that people say about the media need to do this and that, and that will Im, Im, influence the public. The media does not have the the power yeah, the over over what people it have, does, it does what have think power, in society the way they used to. It does to. have the power to frame political and media discourse. But I, I but the point be, I'm point I'm be, getting to is that people are are talking about migration. Um, Outside of out of side of how it is being discussed in the media, and I think that's one of the things I'm concerned about next year is the quality of information. People and are actually, getting. and lots of uh, lots but of really commentary will it be just, the, just the deep be really fake when elections? I, when I made that plea to media to be responsible in how this mm. is positioned, it wasn't on the basis that the media mm. are driving this misinformation. The misinformation stuff is being driven in very orchestrated ways, generally through social media by very very bad Bridget, actors, and we need to challenge yeah. and confront that. But in that context, I think the media need to be even more responsible mm. and even more careful about how this is positioned and not to position it as a debate about migration that fails to acknowledge the broad spectrum broader. of migration C- can and I, that reflects what's actually can happening. Can I bring another broader spectrum in? Uh, Bridget Laffin, um, Julian Borger in The Observer has a great piece. Um, the Middle East is sliding closer to the edge of a wider um, regional conflict. He says the Middle East has been slipping towards the precipice of a regional war ever since the Hamas attack on Israel on 7th October and the ferocious Israeli response in Gaza. He says this past week has shown how the cliff edge keeping it from that abyss could quickly crumble away. And we just heard in the, the news headlines there about, you know, further Houthi attacks and the Red Sea and shipping companies um, stepping back. Are you concerned about a wider conflict? We should hope he's wrong because a wider conflict in that part of the world would be catastrophic uh, and it would bring down, you know, I think the Egyptian regime is pretty fragile. Jordan is pretty fragile. Uh, Iran has emerged as a very serious disruptor state, a very dangerous state. And uh, it appears to me that... Iran has now positioned itself with Russia as the two great disruptor states in the international system, carrying great, great danger. So one has to hope that this stops very soon. Um, there, there are discussions in Cairo at the moment about a ceasefire. And we, without a ceasefire, of course, 
the Middle East is sliding towards a wider regional conflict. Hezbollah, there, it's all in the mix. So if you get to a ceasefire, then one has to hope that the this has been so terrible that it will reopen space for a discussion about what long-term solutions there are to the conflict in that part of the world. Because the Israeli-Arab conflict has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, even the world's response to it, it's it's a much more neuralgic conflict than, say, look what Assad did in Syria. Chemical weapons, you know, none of the protests in anywhere in the world. So I really think that there has to be, uh, I, I see nothing beyond a two-state solution and even that is very difficult Can to Can I just bring in Peter there because I know uh, you're not all that enamoured by what's happening locally or in Ireland in terms of the elections but when you look and we did discuss this with Martin Wall yesterday the, the sheer amount of democracies and significant democracies that are going um, to the polls next year you know the US, UK um, democracy itself um, See, and you're arguing one, is, one is going the, to be tested. Yeah, One of the biggest issues we've got here is the decline of the United States as the police force of the, the world, world since, since yeah, World please. War II. Uh, the, the United States Empire is disappearing <clears throat> in front of our eyes. Their, 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 their influence across the globe uh, is diminishing. And they made, a, they made a, a really serious mistake in confiscating Russian assets, right? Russian uh, sovereign assets and personal assets. Because what happened there is a lot of other countries who normally would invest in the United States and hold US bonds and hold the dollars, the world currency and all that influence are moving away from that dramatically moving away from that, right? And then forging relationships with themselves. So even the dollar is going to lose its influence here, right? So that has huge implications for America's influence on the globe. And especially in the Middle East, America's influence. And it's very difficult to actually see if the conflict widened in the Middle East, who's taking what side? What side are Saudi Arabia on? Uh, You know, recent relations with Iran. So it is very difficult. And I do... uh, um, uh, agree totally with Bridget that we need a ceasefire there really fast. Yeah, are really you hopeful, fast. Bridget, of a ceasefire early next year, perhaps? Uh, well, I had hoped the last one would hold, mm. and it didn't. And and what's been happening since is 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 has just been terrible. So, uh, it's it's impossible to predict. I would say one other thing that as long as Netanyahu is prime minister of Israel, that's very bad for that state. Uh, this is his war. He's fighting it for his political uh, political future. Mm. He knows he was responsible uh, for some of the conditions that led to the events of October 7. So, and the Israeli people will get rid of him. But the sooner they do, the sooner he's gone, the better. So I do think that there, that there could be a virtuous cycle emerging from this, but there could also be the vicious one. And it's I, I wouldn't hazard a prediction. And, and that's, one of the, that's one of the points that uh, um, that Julian Borger is making in, in his piece as well, that actually for Netanyahu politically, there's no benefit at all in this conflict ending. And, and he's yeah. talking again, I mean, all, all reports today in, in media have him talking about this is a conflict that will go on for many, many months. And it's because it's, it's in his political interest for that to continue. And equally, that won't in, la- the mix, that won't last. in the mix of all of this, like if this does spill over into Lebanon, I mean, 25% of the population of Lebanon are Syrian refugees. Yeah, yeah. You know, where we failed to actually address that and that refugee crisis yeah. effectively and Lebanon has been left holding a very significant uh, number of people in there as well. And then if we look at what's happening in Gaza right now, I mean, the latest numbers, nearly 22,000 people killed and 56,500 people wounded. 2.2 million people internally displaced in a place half the size of County Louth. I mean, what's happening is 
horrific. Yeah, that's and there's really no sign there's no sign that it's going to come to an end. Mm. And I, but I do think really quickly one of the things that we have to start to talk about is the failure of international law here. I mean, international law is just being routinely and regularly ignored, and there is no respect anymore for and the. Rule we of haven't even got around this morning, Peter, to talk about the. Uh, recent activity in recent days in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, well, see, this is the problem here because what's happening here now is taking the focus off Ukraine, and, and <clears> which is giving P- uh, Putin a second wind here. Uh, and we've got a very dangerous situation there because there's no question about an American uh, attitude and, to and funding this war is changing, yeah. and European attitude to funding this war. And we're getting, you know, uh, immune to a lot of the stuff that's going on here. And we've got a, we've, we're facing 2024 with a lot of European mm-hmm. turmoil. Can I bring you back just to something, um, just to switch uh, focus completely, but just when you were just saying about things we kind of get used to, Grania, one of the things we sort of got used to or accustomed to um, is kind of trolleys and waiting figures and seasonal peaks and flus. But there was a piece by uh, Maeve Sheehan today, the lead story um, in the Sunday Independent about the the tragic death last December of uh, the teenager um, Aoife Johnson. And um, it really is a, a... I suppose, a, a timeline or an, an anatomy, but the many of the issues raised in it are so familiar in terms of what happens when people are showing up at a units. I think um, the reason that stood out to me is because in, a, you know, there are so many issue important issues and oftentimes when you're talking about something like Israel-Gaza, it's hard to focus on, you know, um, a kind of a lo- you know, local massive story um, and give it the attention it deserves which Maeve Sheehan does in, in this piece it's a forensic it, it's an un, it, I should say it's an as yet unpublished internal review into um, her, care. her care but the issues that it raises would this be this time last year you know, there, there was one there was one nurse who at, at one point was attending up to 67 acutely yeah. unwell patients and we've almost um, Colin McGorman become accustomed yeah. To that, yeah, I, I think so, and I mean, it, it it speaks to how many of the things that we're most concerned about socially come back to failures at a policy level and at a state level to deliver effective public services. How long has health been and has our health system not been operating effectively? Now, we are seeing, it would appear, some signs of improvement, particularly in, on, on there has been numbers, increased capacity on, on numbers, etc. Yeah. And we are seeing increased capacity. But here we are, we're, we're regularly told that we're awash with money, and yet we don't seem to be able to get on top of issues like housing or health effectively. And the impact of that, I mean, Maeve Sheehan is always forensic, but the mm. impact the impact of that in individual lives is is really clear from a yeah. piece like this. But it's, it's repeated. Across the country on a regular basis. And Peter, it speaks to that sort of long term strategic issue of well, how are we planning for those population increases, including a rapidly ageing population? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, as I say, look, I mean, it, you know, a 12 hour wait in any is, is not unheard of. It, Although what's very different here is this young girl was very sick. It seems every time I'm on this yeah. uh, programme, uh, this comes up and I get into trouble, right? But uh, look, the, 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 the HSE issue is not money. It's, it's processes and procedures. You can't change, unwillingness to change processes and procedures, mistreatment of frontline staff, nurses completely being mistreated, massively underpaid compared to people in other areas of society. You get more for driving a Lewis tram than you do for being a qualified nurse. They're leaving in droves. Um, you know, we've got, look at the two, look at the, the absolutely spectacular debacle that's going on in the children's hospital. Uh, how they're going to staff it when they have it finished at over two billion, God only knows. You know, it's just mismanagement. It's mismanagement and a lack of willing to, to change 
been going on for decades. But it's, but it's not like an airplane that when it's full you send it off. These are demand-led um, services and particularly at times of the But year they're not demand-led remunerated services. We don't pay hospitals on the basis that they treat patients. We pay them on budgets, right? And then the motivation, of course, is make sure you always spend your budget, right? Even if you don't need the stuff, order it anyhow, get it paid for so that we get the same budget next year. That sort of mentality and the inability to fire anyone who's incompetent all of that mentality means that the H, that this health system is the same in the UK. It'll be here in 20 years' time, exactly the same. Can I uh, bring uh, you, Bridget, in on a story that I know you'd spotted and it was about the um, mother and baby's home and the call to, um, to you know, to essentially for the state to do an audit on the, um, on the, on the relevant orders. It it didn't work out too well the last time. I really did it with the with the Michael Woods deal. Like, I mean, did they can we compel so the orders to to open the books? Well, I I think the state has to use public power, and it has public power, and it's extraordinary that it's t- it, almost a decade since the Tomb Baby scandal uh, was 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 given prominence. Uh, and although the religious orders uh, apologised in in in, two th- in the last couple of years, not a single euro has been transferred to the Irish state to help address the compensation of those women and Not children. Mother and baby homes as distinct from the re- re- redress for, scheme for the redress yeah. scheme. Uh, and so I think they have to be held to account because uh, although the Irish state bears responsibility also for it, they too do. And uh, I think the state should use public power, whatever levers it has. And of course, they, it'll be resisted because it clearly has been resisted. But I don't think the orders can apologise for what happened in those baby <coughs> homes and but end Colin, up not Colin handing McGorman, over you, a euro. You have plenty uh, of experience this. The, the Sunday Times uh, lead editorial has a suggestion that... Um, a final option would be to impose a financial levy on the orders and to buttress that levy in the constitution. They said while it would be a drastic move open to misrepresentation across the world, um, it it would be worth considering. Well, I mean, good good luck to using public power because that hasn't worked at all over the last mm. 25 years. I mean, the simple reality is the church at that level and the congregations, let's be clear about who we're talking about here, the hierarchy mm. of those congregations have no concern for public pressure at this stage. I mean, they're beyond the point of no return at this stage and what they're doing now is increasingly protecting their wealth and their assets. Yeah. Um, and they'll, they'll continue to hide them, they'll continue to dispose of them. The only way, as you say, Derville, is for, uh, as is suggested in that piece, is to hold them accountable through force of law. And if that requires deep dig thinking on the constitutional implications of that well then there's well, it's, an it's, area it's never been tested it's never been tested ab- in the Supreme Court that has we, it that we absolutely, would you say bring it on absolutely bring it on I think we, we we need to look at building in effective systems of accountability into our legal and public systems I mean it's and let's be clear the state has a legal obligation to do this Ireland has clear legal obligations under an international law despite what I said a few moments ago about it being disregarded to ensure that those who are responsible for grave and systemic human rights, human rights violations are held to account. Those violations are beyond question. There has been zero accountability. You talked about the redress board. I remember in 2011 in Amnesty, we did a big report on, on the history of institutional and other abuse in the Irish context. And at that time, I think we worked out that 11 cases individually that were dealt with in the, uh, dealt with, 
from, from within the REM dealt with by the Ryan report had been referred to the DPP, of which there had been to that date three prosecutions. So our criminal justice system doesn't deliver accountability. Our civil justice system certainly didn't. The redress board absolutely did not. That's one of the great scandals of modern Ireland, in my view. It did not deliver uh, accountability or justice uh, for those victims. And we need to fundamentally change how we approach this issue. And yes, the state is responsible and ultimately accountable, but it also has an obligation to hold the congregations accountable and to ensure that they are held accountable before the law. I don't know if you remember the, the nursing home issue at the start of the year where we were talking about a, a, a legacy issue about the state's obligation to um, uh, people with medical cards to provide nursing home care and they were um, put in private nursing homes and that kind of story bubbled up uh, earlier this year but the Taoiseach I think said something interesting where he said we, th- we there is a cut off point where we need to move on and we need to use funds to provide services for the future instead of dealing with all the legacy issues that we have which I thought was a telling um, view of what the government sees its options as. The problem as. is they're not legacy yeah. issues because they resonate in the lives well, of the people they, impacted they, and intergenerationally they, they resonate there, across there is society. A justice yeah. system. They do indeed and, and I suspect process. that that would be um, an entire hour on its own <laughs> that we could uh, dedicate to that and time which I do not have but uh, thank you all uh, for joining me today to Grania Nia, News Report with PA Bridget Lathan, Chancellor of University of Limerick Colin McGorman, Human Rights Campaigner and Peter Brown from Bagot Investments just coming up to 12 o'clock we're going to go across to the newsroom and to James Healy.